0: I was invited to the partner meetings and I got to sit and look at what was happening inside the firm and they wrote down their investment process and then the investment process was like, identify, evaluate, sell, close, make successful. I'm like, that is a recruiting process. Like it's actually the exact same process that we're running. I wanted to really impact the core business. And so I had this personal goal that I wanted 20% of the investments that Greylock made to come through the work that the town team did.
1: Hey everybody, welcome back to the HR Heretics Podcast, where we get into the real talk of company construction. These are the conversations that happen between founders, chief people officers, and board members behind closed doors.
2: We're heretics in this industry because there's a culture of silence around important business topics, especially with people. But on the show, we tell the truth and expect the same from our guests. This week's guest is Dan Portillo. I refer to Dan as the godfather of VC Talent Partners. He's now building his own fund with a -a one-of-a-kind value proposition that prioritizes talent. We get into the deep details about how VC and VC talent partners operate. It's an influential world that most people who work in venture actually don't understand. Along the way, we hear stories from Dan's journey about Reed Hoffman, John Lilly, and Howard Schultz. We also talk about back channels, finding success as an advisor, and the necessary skill of framing new ideas as experiments. Without further ado, here's our conversation with Dan. Dan Borcio, thank you so much for joining us. You are a legend in Silicon Valley. I refer to you as the godfather of talent partners. Um, you were at Mozilla as the 20th employee there. You were at Greylock as the talent partner there and building the Greylock team. And now you've gone off to be a venture partner at the GP. Thanks so much for being with us.
0: Oh, thank you for having me. Godfather makes me sound old, but uh
2: I appreciate it. Thanks. You don't have that many grays. I think you're looking pretty good. Yeah. Old and wise. Old and wise. I'd love to start at Mozilla. You were the twentieth employee. How did that come about? What was your job? and how did like the talent thing end up working out there?
0: Uh, so the way that I ended up at Mozilla, so I had worked for a company called Center run. It was this really tiny startup. The CEO was a guy is a guy named Arif Halali who became a partner at Sequoia. our i t guy now runs Verily. He's a CEO of Verily um multiple v like a VP at figma, a VP at Salesforce. Um, one of the partners that I work with, oh, and then a guy named Shrepp who became the CTO of Facebook. So this company got bought for like 50 million dollars, but like the talent diaspora went went everywhere. And so John Lilly was part of the VC fund that f- created uh Centrun, And so he called me and said, Hey, I'm joining this company, Mozilla. Um, Shrepp is also joining. Would you consider joining us? And so I was like, all right, this sounds great. I would love to join. And so I ended up joining as one of the very first employees. There was a, there was no recruiting at that point. So everyone that they hired had come out of previously working at Netscape or were community members at uh, working on Firefox. And so to give you an idea, like none of the engineers had calendars. So you can schedule interviews. You couldn't do it. Like they just basically had IRC, which is basically the precursor for Slack. And we couldn't use any Microsoft products. So it was, it was even pre Zimbra. So we're using some other like weird email thing because Mozilla's unique org. And so I basically had to convince everyone that guess what? We need calendars because there's no way we can schedule interviews if we don't have ways of people knowing when they're supposed to show up to things. So I was like literally printing like resumes and schedules and putting them on people's desks to get them to like show up. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a little bit stone age. Um it's a part of the challenges and, and things that I really enjoyed about Mozilla is it's a very mission-driven organization. They're a nonprofit, um, very strong values, and then part the part and then high, high technical expectations. And what we needed to figure out is like how do we hire people that have um the same skills and abilities but don't come out of the community because a lot of the community members did not have the required technical skill. And what we kept finding is that we're pissing off community members by interviewing them and not hiring them. And so I spent time with, um, the engineers, uh, that had been there for a long time, like from the pre, uh, Mozilla days that came from Netscape to look for like, what were they looking for in people? Uh, and to give you an idea. So the CTO of, uh, Mozilla is a guy named Brendan Eich that created JavaScript uh, and now you know is the founder of the Brave Browser. And so very, very high technical bar. And so going through, like, all right, well, what do we need to hire in people to get them to fit in this role? And what we kind of dissected was, all right, they needed to be incredibly technically strong. They had to be a very diverse from a technical background. So no one that just loved a particular language. They needed to be able to pick the right tools and the right language to solve the right particular problem uh, and having a strong, like, mission orienta- orientation. And we also needed people that were strong systems programmers and that also loved the web. So at the time, you kind of had, like, lightweight web programmers or you had hardcore C++ people. You didn't really have people that kind of stretched between the two. And so a lot of the work was, like, trying to find people that bridged both strong systems programming and, and uh, understanding of the web.
1: Dan, I back to the scaling of Mozilla, I tend to think about this hyperscale as two sides of one coin, the HR side and the recruiting side. You were there for both, and usually the recruiting side goes first. But let's hire, let's hire, let's hire. How, how did that org side catch up or did it, or was it, there was a chasm between growing that? How did you see that? So, uh, so we ran
0: recruiting first. So I
1: ran recruiting
0: and I set that up and I wouldn't say we hit like hyperscale. Like I joined at 20 and uh, there were probably about 500 when, when I kind of moved on to the next thing. Um, but we, I was probably a couple years in and John Lilly, the CEO came and said, you can do anything you want at this company, except write code. Like, tell me the job that you want and let's figure it out. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I, I, I often think of recruiting as the promise that you make to someone about the job that you're taking. And then as like the HR or the people function as the delivery of that promise. And so I ended up taking over, uh, the recruiting and HR for, for, for Mozilla. And, uh, I'm happy to go into detail. I don't know how interesting it would be for folks, but. The very first thing that they gave me was our performance evaluation process, and so we ran it once a year, and at the end of it, everyone got a one, two, or three. If you got a three, you're you know on a performance plan. if you got a one, you got a seven to ten percent range, so a raise so the high performers were never really happy with what they got from a comp perspective, and we were spending a bunch of time just shutting down the org like once a year and so I started spending some time on that process and I talked to Bob Sutton, who's a professor at Stanford who wrote the No Asshole Rule, and he's a friend of John's. So I was like, I went to him and said, I think that this process doesn't make any sense and it's actually probably doing more harm than good to the organization. Uh, the next morning, John Lilly comes into uh, my office and says, have you read Bob's blog this morning? And I said, no, they didn't. He's like, well, you should. And then after you read it, let me know what we're going to do about it. So um, Bob posted that young HR, I was young then, like it was, a, it was a long time ago. So young HR executive says performance reviews do more harm than good. And so, but he didn't name me, he didn't call me out by name, but he like talked about like the set of things that we talked about and, and then put it into an article and I'm sure I can find it like somewhere. But I went to John and then started thinking about like, all right, well, how did we want to manage performance? And is this once a year cycle actually what we want to do? Um, we ended up creating a leveling structure and doing basically something similar to what Google does now and looking, not making it about performance reviews and really focusing on, um, people moving between levels. So showing them what they needed to do to move from, you know, L2 to L3 and then managing our performance against how they were doing against level, and so that way, if people are moving in their career very quickly, I could give them multiple raises in a given year. And then if people, you know, were doing good work and it's fine, we could just kind of focus on managing the top ten percent and the bottom ten percent, and leave, you know, the middle, you know, most of the middle alone.
2: Wait, so so Bob is the guy who had no asshole rule. And then completely out you, <laughs> like that, that seems a little contradictory. He, he did to me. not say my name. He did not say my name, he and actually, it name. was the
0: best thing he could have done for me. So I, I'm, uh, but uh, it definitely created yeah. a lot of work for the, the next like few months after that.
2: So on the leveling piece, right now, I feel like there's a push against levels. I actually talked to a lot of founders who are like, I hate levels, and I want to like get rid of them. What's your take on it, given that you were part of the people that instituted this?
0: Um, Well, that existed before like before like that had been around for a long time. I think we did it in a a unique way. And I think the way that we managed how we thought about compensation relative to that was, was probably unique. I think they're helpful for understanding um, and for helping people navigate their careers. And then You know, there's a difference between a staff engineer and a regular engineer. And like most of the engineers that we have at the GP are at least staff, if not senior staff or principal. And so the amount of responsibility that someone at that level can take for their org is different. And I think it's, it's helpful to understand that in how you hire and to say we need to hire people at a particular type of experience and a type of impact. And that's hard to do without understanding levels. How that, how that actually had like the other side of that is inside the organization, there's a bunch of arguing about what level people are. And then you got to manage against it. So it does create work if you make those levels apparent. But I think you have to understand when you're hiring and if you're hiring that, but you don't necessarily have to have an internal leveling system in your organization, you know, until you're much bigger and then you have to think about promotions. I would say what's happened over the last couple of years between COVID and the markets, like, HR and performance and like giving people massages and back rubs have probably gone to the, to the wayside. And so I think orgs have been saved a lot of work on having to think about career development.
1: I think I mean, just to take a pause and, and no one would love your feedback too. I mean, you started at Mozilla in two thousand five, and it's almost twenty years ago. Thank you. And for, we're for still that up. <laughs> I mean, the Godfather, right? But we're we're still ping ponging back levels, no levels, performance reviews, no it's it's fascinating to me. A lot of folks are still in search for the answer, the right way. And there just isn't one.
0: Uh, I agree. We we actually don't do any performance work at the fund. We actually Are basic, very actively managed in how we think about deliverables. And it's very, very deliverables oriented. So we don't do that. I will say that like whatever thing you choose will cause problems that you have to like, like fix and address. And so what you'll see, you see reorgs in large companies all the time. And so you have verticalized solutions where like product management basically is vertically aligned all the way up like the org. And so then that problem that that creates is like, you don't really have this sense of team. And so then you'll see the organization then flip to lines of businesses and that creates like little fiefdoms. And so the question is like, all right, well, which problem do we want to deal with first and like, which one's going to be harder? And then, then being aware of what problem I'm actually creating for myself in the future and, and, and how do I want to address that?
2: It's trade-offs.
1: It's always trade-offs. And then I'm sure at, at Greylock in your seven years, I'd love to hear the story of how you parlayed into Greylock and that journey, because I'm sure those years were formative, too.
0: Yeah, happy too. So I'd, I was at Mozilla, I think, about five five years. So this was probably about year four. Um, Josh McFarland, who's a partner at Greylock now, um, was starting a company that they funded. They were looking at bringing in a talent partner. Uh, Josh referred me in. I met with a few folks. It was good meetings. Kind of felt that they wanted me to go recruit MBAs at Harvard, and that was not really what I wanted to spend my time doing. Nothing against like Harvard MBAs, it's just not like how I wanted to spend my time. Uh, And then I went to John, uh, John Lily, who was my boss at Mozilla and still like my biggest mentor to this day. We have calls like every two weeks and said, Hey, like, what do you know about Greylock? Uh, Is this something I should take seriously? And he said, If you stay, I'll make you a VP, but you should go talk to Reed Hoffman, who was on the board of Mozilla. And because he knows them very well, because Greylock had funded uh, LinkedIn in the early days. So I got to go to Reid Hoffman's house and sat down with him and talked to him about the opportunity and shared my concerns about, you know, recruiting MBAs isn't really what I want to do. Or like, I'm really thinking about this from a network perspective. And what are the opportunities when you have a network of companies versus a single company And he said, well, look, John will kill me, but if you want, like, I need a VP of HR at LinkedIn. So this is, you know, 2010. Uh, and I said, I can't handle any more like decisions. Like I need to like focus and narrow things down. I tend to want to oversimplify things to as few variables as possible. And then Reed said, there's a non-zero chance that I'm going to go to Greylock. And I was too embarrassed to ask what that meant. And so I decided to take the VP job at Mozilla. Soon after Reed announced that he was joining Greylock and then John Lilly announced that he was joining Greylock and then they had hired someone else to work in that role. And so I started thinking about like what was next for me. And I had been advising an HR company called Ripple. So a lot of the work that I'd been doing in HR led to. Finding the right solution, I found this small team in Toronto that was doing some unique HR work, and they started building a solution for us. They made me an offer to be the first U.S. employee and open up the office here, and we were getting some interesting traction. We were running like all of Facebook's performance reviews, and we were talking to Hulu and LinkedIn, and so I joined to uh, run Customer Success. It was a really valuable learning experience for me, probably the most that I've ever learned in in any amount of time in my career, kind of my working MBA, it was the most stressful time of my life that I've ever had because I've learned that I don't like not being good at things. Like I went to one salsa class with my mom and sucks. So I took 25 <laughs> private lessons. Like that is the kind of individual that you're, you're dealing with. And so it was incredibly stressful. I think I did a good job. Um, and you know, my wife, my now wife and I were engaged and I think the amount of stress and loss of sleep and, Eventually I reconnected with John Lilly, we were having lunch and he said, Hey, we want to kind of rethink what we're doing from a talent perspective. Will you reconsider a role at Greylock? And I said, sure, I'm happy to do it. So I came in, had a few conversations. And it moved like pretty quickly. And I had a lot of trust with John, who's been a good friend. And Reed basically said, came into the meeting. He says, I'm here exclusively to recruit you to come take this job. So like will you come here? And so Reid Hoffman asked you to do something. You don't say no twice. So um, so I ended up joining.
2: Greylock was a hell of a run. I always think of you as like the model of what a good talent partner looks like. I remember you and I had a conversation, I think it was in 2017, about Figma. And you were pitching me about, you know, the first recruiter role at Figma. And I was like, what the hell is Dan talking about with like this design oh, you'd company?
0: you be so rich right now.
2: <laughs> I'm an idiot if that proves anything. Like, you were so right. Um, shame on me. That said, Greylock had so many incredible companies that they backed. And you were instrumental in working with a lot of these founders. Like, what was that experience like for you? Like it like, it was,
0: a you know, you got to work with Kevin Sistrom when he was starting Instagram. There were eight people we placed like their head of infra, their head of S or their head of infrastructure, their head of SRE. I'm getting to work with him now on artifact. Like I've got a chance to work with like so many amazing people. And, you know, Dylan was basically straight out of Brown when we started working with him on Figma. For me, it was like, how do we jump in? How do we provide the most amount of value for a founder? How do we, Help them accelerate a lot of their critical hiring and then put them on a path for success. And so my model, well, actually how I got started at Greylock, there was no job description. Basically the job was like, come here and make us look good in front of, in, in front of other opportunities. So it's easier to close investments, but no one told me that that was the job. So what I did was I spoke with each of the investors and asked them about uh, what was important to them. And a pattern emerged. So the pattern was, I'm interested in whatever I just invested in yesterday and whatever I think is going to be worth the most amount of money. So I went and met with each of those companies and... The most amount of com- money companies were tended to be like breakout growth stage companies. And so most of the work that they needed was programmatic, like a university program, some training, um, some things that you could actually do at scale. And all of the new investments basically just needed first engineers and, and being able to kind of build that, that founding team around them. So we basically oriented almost all the work around new companies coming in. So I had um we had a doc with every investor, their P1 and their P2 company, and then their other investments. And we oriented oriented everything around the P1. So company would come in, we'd write an executive summary, we'd work on key roles, we'd knock out a handful of positions, bring in a recruiter, send them on their way. And so At the time, like my job was trying to know everyone, every great person like you, Nolan, from a recruiting perspective, because like my job got fundamentally easier if the person running recruiting in each one of the companies was exceptional, because then we could just focus on sourcing and then throwing them like high quality talent, and then they could run with it.
1: Hey, everyone, we'll be right back in a moment after a word from our sponsors.
2: Hey, everybody, your co-host Nolan here. High performance and great culture should never be at odds. They're better together. With Lattice People Management Platform, companies efficiently run people programs that create enviable cultures where employees want to do their best work. Serving thousands of customers of all sizes globally, Lattice helps everyone work better together. Learn why companies from Slack to the LA Dodgers choose Lattice. Visit Lattice.com hrheretics HR Heretics today. That's Lattice, L-A-T-T-I-C-E.com. Have you ever had a negative experience hiring an executive? I certainly did at Carta and DoorDash, and that's why I started Continuum, the modern AI-powered executive search firm. Continuum connects executives and senior operators to venture-backed tech companies for fractional and full-time roles. You could post any executive-level role to Continuum's marketplace and search through our database of world-class experience leaders. Continuum will intelligently surface your opportunity to relevant operators. They'll express interest and show up in your inbox. It's like magic. There's no platform fee or hidden cost. You only pay the person you hire and you can cancel at any time. If you're thinking about hiring an exec in the middle of a search right now or don't know how to solve a problem, I get it. Scaling is hard. Companies like Athletic Greens, Weights and Biases, Massari and more than a hundred other tech companies have turned to Continuum for help solving their people ops, go to market, engineering and finance challenges. So check out Continuum in the description below. Ping me on LinkedIn if you have any questions or head to joincontinuum.com.
1: Dan, the the years you were at Greylock were kind of like my fairway bullseye years of adventure when I kind of started. I'm still in it, but a lot happened in those seven years between 2011 and 2018. I mean, in that arena, what what would you say were kind of your aha moments with exec hiring or or other in um, those timeframes as far as how the industry shifted or changed? So uh, there was
0: two talent partners. I ran what we called core talent, which was everything from university to senior director. And then there was Jeff Markowitz who ran all of the exact side of the house, like very well-known kind of like one of the best in the industry. I think their role Is a bit different. I think a lot of what exact search ends up like not to disparage it, but tends to be like having handing out searches to the right search firms to work on the right roles and make sure they get done. And then our job was a bit more operational of company goes in, knock it out, rolls, put the recruiter, get out, like move into the next one. It was a little more kind of like special forces. And then the exact partner is more like managing an army of like, you know, and being able to get onto the search schedule of the top search firms, which is in itself like a very important skill. So if I think about the phases of my career at Greylock, so like phase one was like figure out what the hell to do in this job. And like, that was, you know, talking to partners, talking to companies, figuring out their needs, the second phase was delivering against that and being able to deliver against it consistently and having the right team to be able to do that, so that we had, you know to be very referenceable with our portfolio companies. And then a few years in, you know, I became a partner I wasn't hired as a partner, I was invited to the partner meetings, and I got to sit and look at what was happening inside the firm, and they wrote down their investment process, and then the investment process was like, identify evaluate, sell, close, make successful. I'm like, that is a recruiting process. Like it's actually the exact same process that we're running. I wanted to really impact the core business. And so I had this personal goal that I wanted 20% of the investments that Greylock made to come through the work that the Town team did. And my way of impacting that was say like ventures, fundamentally a network business. And so if we can win at network, we can actually impact the core business. And so that led me to build, um, what we called it, commun- what we called communities. And so I brought a little bit from what first round was doing. So first round was doing these little networks of like, Oh, all of our product marketing managers are going to get together or designers and we'll do these events. And I said, well, I want to do small events. I'm going to have founding members of like the top four to 10 designers, data scientists, infrastructure engineers. They will be the foundation of the community. We will invite the people that they want to invite. We'll run the topics that they want to run and we will handle all the logistics for the events. And some of our employees or some of the people in our companies may not be good enough to attend our meetings. And so I decided to focus exclusively on the best in the sector and not on our community. Not to say that there weren't good people from Greylock in these, but like that was not the goal. So that work led to, um, 17 investments by Greylock. And so some of those were formation projects where we were putting founding teams together. So, you know, an investor would have a thesis. I had to work on recruiting the people to go and start it. Um, and then I also worked on EIRs bringing them in to work on new companies. And then the rest came from a lot of the community work that, that we were doing. So, you know, two, so the, Our security community, one of them started Sardine, which I, you know, helped like invest in when I was uh at Sweat Equity. And then Diogo uh started Anchorage, the crypto company. And so like they were in our community as well. And so there must be dozens of companies that got created that when you go to the source of the best people in their field, they tend to have a unique insight about what they want to build. And so that's where I really focus. And so that was kind of Um, the, that last phase of my career at Greylock and, um, I think as much as I love my time there, uh, there's a pretty kind of natural ceiling of what I was going to be able to do. Frankly, like, I don't think they really knew what to do with me anyways. And so like, I'm not, I wasn't supposed to do these types of things. And then that's what kind of led for me to decide to kind of move on and start
2: something. So 17 investments from basically an experiment in communities is so cool. So, your talent partner at Greylock, then you go start Sweat Equity, now the GP. Tell us about that transition and then the unique differentiation you guys have.
0: Sure. So, I gave notice at the beginning of 2018. Uh, I hired my replacement, um, Glenn Evans, who's doing a phenomenal job over there. My entire team stayed. Like they like left them in a really good spot. Like they treated me very well. They actually accelerated my carry, which is not something you do when people quit. Like they, so I can't say enough good things about what Greylock did. Um, and, you know, I really focused on making the transition and had been thinking about the idea for, for Sweat Equity for a while. I spoke with a number of firms, like great firms with great people. And they really wanted me to just do what I had already done at Greylock all over again. And so in my mind, I'm like, wait, there's more. There's a lot more that we can do. And the feedback was like, no, what you did before is good enough. I just couldn't do that. And my wife was incredibly supportive and said, look, I want you to be happy. I don't want you to just go back into the same job and like be unhappy in that role. And in some ways, it's like even if they paid me more, I'd have to earn it like all over again. And I just wasn't like ready to do that or wanting to do that. And so we made the decision of say like, all right, even if I'm going to make dramatically less money, like I want to like do things in in my own way. And had this kind of crazy idea. So circa 2018, so this is September. There's kind of this new transition in venture. There's this explosion of funds. Like literally, everyone had money. And so they're announcing their fund. We just raise X millions of dollars. We do everything from seed to public market investing, and we're ready to do deals. And so they're all trying to compete on something besides money because everyone had money. So what is, what is it that you can provide for me? What service and what does that look like? And so my thesis was that venture was never really structured to do that. So a typical fund, like, so say you raise a hundred million dollars, you have a fee of two to two and a half percent to operate the fund. So per hundred million, you have two to two and a half million dollars to operate the amount of money that you need to deploy. Most of that money goes to paying investors, operating the fund. And so you have a sliver of that left to provide some set of services. So to give you an idea, my team at Mozilla was about $2 million a year to run around billions of dollars of of deployed capital. And so I was thinking about the space and like, all right, how do I change this? And like, I don't want to go raise a bunch of money because that's going to require me having an incredibly concentrated portfolio because I'd have to write big checks in order to do deep enough work or to provide something like very shallow. And so that led to the idea behind sweat equity, which is to essentially try to unbundle venture services from venture capital. So I raised $30 million from Reed Hoffman. Um, that 30 million was all operating budget. And then we did work in exchange for equity in our portfolio companies, Um, and so that allowed me to spend the entire 30 million on services instead of two and a half percent like per year on services. So it changed the way that I could deliver what we were doing. And so I did not set out to, you know, create an innovation in venture. I kind of set out to like do what I could do best. And this felt like the best model to do that. But what it ended up creating was taking, um, what is a cost center for every other venture capital firm that you're trying to amortize over as many companies as possible and turned it into a revenue center and allowed you to invest in it very differently. So I could spend $2 million on a single company if I was earning enough equity for it instead of like my entire $2 million budget that I had at Greylock. And so it allowed me to do things that didn't scale. So for example, I would create a statement or we create to this day, we still create statements of work with our companies of this is what we're going to deliver. This is what we're going to earn and over what period of time. And here's the milestones. Um, and then it also allowed me to create three different, like I created three service tiers. So, Talent team that, did, that does dedicated recruiting work. Um, we ended up building an engineering team. And it's a ridiculous engineering team. So it's all kind of former tech leads and principal engineers. Um, the tech lead for App Engine, the tech lead for YouTube, the creator of Google Wallet. Um I go on like on and on of like these people that are like we're really excited about like getting to build with early stage companies. And then we built a go-to-market team that would focus on high velocity SDR-driven sales and like six, seven figure enterprise. And so a lot of funds will deliver leads, but what they don't usually tell you is what it takes to navigate procurement and multiple like sales site, like multiple like stakeholders and like someone wants to buy it and you have people in the way and like how do you actually get a six, seven figure deal done? So a lot of the work would be able to kind of do that. And we were able to have a much, much larger team than any other fund could due to the nature of our business model. Um, I did not announce the company for at least the first like 18 months. Like I did not want to be another fund with an idea with no proof behind any of it. Um, I think that's kind of like the immigrants child in me of, I have to prove it. Like, I can't just say I'm going to do these things. And so, you know, it was a crazy idea and we ended up working with like neuro and ubiquity six and we helped like launch some really early stage companies like sardine, um, and, uh, and scribe. And it worked like like shockingly well, like way better than I thought like I had any right for it to work. After a few years, we kind of noticed that like our services equity just got diluted pretty quickly. So we got mostly kind of common shares. And that having a small amount of capital going in would allow us to protect our position in the company. So I went back to read. And said, Hey, can we expand the fund to write like three to 500 K checks in our C stage companies? And so he agreed to that. Like he's been the best partner, like anyone could ever ask for. And then we were also introduced to Howard Schultz's family office. So the Starbucks founder. And then we did another 22 million in SPVs, like into our portfolio companies. So service would open the door or create the opportunity and then capital does have scale behind it. So the ability to bring in capital to like have to like broaden our position in the companies that, that we work with. Um, and so it worked pretty well. Um, do you want to keep going? Yeah. So I'm I'm fascinated
2: by this story. So, so then talk to us a little bit about the transition from those learnings. at sweat equity to now what you're doing at the GP
0: well, I guess you want a real story. So I'll give you the real story. Um, so we had two amazing LPs. So we had Reed, um, and, and Howard Schultz though. We worked through Howard's team, not Howard. And, you know, we're thinking about like, we, for me to take like the next like step, um, we needed someone that kind of looks more like Folks, the uh, like the traditional LPs like want to back. So, you know, my mom's from Cuba, my dad's from El Salvador. I'm first generation born here. I went to a public university. I do not fit the mold of anyone that runs a venture capital fund. And so, um, I had met Finn Barnes, who was at First Round Capital. He made an announcement that he was, you know, going to be moving on. And we had gotten to know each other. I thought very like highly of him. He's like he's not your typical VC, like you know where's Nike's all about his Jordans. Like, he's a cool, he's like, he's a really cool guy and a very good investor. And so part of the initial reason was like, all right, if I get someone like him, I can kind of parade him in front of the other kind of VCs and they'll be like, or the other LPs. And like, they, they want to invest in guys like him, not, not guys like me. Um, and I think that was a massive like disservice to him as an investor and a partner. And so we spent a bunch of time together and then, um, we just built this like amazing friendship and partnership. And so we decided to kind of rebrand sweat equity to the general partnership and then raise our first institutional fund. So we got read to commit. Um I, I can't actually legally talk about any of our LPs, but like very well-known endowments and nonprofits. Like we ended up with like truly like blue chip um, VCs, but I will sell going out fundraising in 2018 was a interesting time. So we got like, 70 million right away and then like a hundred nos in a row, but we ended up raising 240 million. We'll raise our next fund, you know, sometime soon. I don't know legally what I'm allowed to say, but you know, we'll, we we'll, I think we've earned the right to have a second fund. And so I'm being very kind of protective of that. And we built, you know, it's fundamentally like sweat equity 2.0, but instead of running SPVs, like, I don't know how much folks care about like finance, but like the way an SPV works is like you have to get the allocation and then you have to get the money. And so if you can't come up with the allocation or the money, you kind of look like a jackass. And so at least in your own funds, like you're able to have them together. Um, and so that way like you can make your own decisions and then you don't have to kind of go and kind of run an SPV. Um. But fundamentally, I don't think we run like much different, like we run a very tight operational um, ship, like services, still the core of of our business. And um, Finn brings a lot of like skill and judgment from his time at first round and helps us look at companies probably a little bit differently than we had before. But fundamentally, it still all comes down to people and the quality of people that you're working with and like giving them the space to try and build very big businesses.
1: Dan, I have kind of maybe a spicy one, maybe not. So you mentioned your three pillars, right? Recruiting, tech, go to market. Um, just coming from years and years in the chief people officer role, a lot of us are like, I want to go into venture. I want to go into venture. And some do. And real talk, they've struggled. And right. They, they don't, value the OD part of it, the strategic people, ops, right? The roles that we've done in venture in high growth companies has been harder to get traction in the VCs because it's all about recruiting, recruiting, recruiting. I'd love your views on that. And if that's shifting at all, or how you think about it. Yeah, I,
0: mean, I can't speak for, for other firms. I think at its core, it's a different job, right? And so what, the role of the talent partner in firms maybe is making the portfolio companies better. It's more likely the illusion of looking like you're doing a very, very good job at that. Your companies are happy and view that it's important and that in the board meeting, the CEO says something about the other, about that firm and embarrasses the other board members at other firms. And they go yell at their talent partner of like, why are, why isn't company X like saying good things about us in the board meeting? That's so true. <laughs> and so part of like, how do you create the thing that is most referenceable and noticeable like for founders? And a lot of that is like a lot of the OD work is not the CEO's work. Like you're working with like, you know, if the HR leaders like love you, that's great, but that doesn't show up in the investment pipeline. And so if someone is if a founder is talking to another founder about a firm, it's usually not usually like, oh, they helped me with this like organizational design problem. No, it's like they solved this like particularly important problem for me. And because of that, I'm very grateful to them.
1: Or they brought me 12 executives.
0: Yeah. And that's like they changed the trajectory, like trajectory of our company. And, and so I think that it's like how do you kind of figure out the right level of organizational impact? And no one tells you what the job is. Like, like I said, I mean, I told you how it got started at Greylock. I was like, all right, like make us look good, but we're not going to tell you how go figure it out. And so, um, I think at the benefit of being one of the early people in the role, I had people kind of show up and be like, all right, you've been doing this. Like, what did you do? I'm like, well, look, I can't tell you how your partners view the job, but I can tell you every partner has probably a slightly different um, job. And there's probably a couple of partners that don't think you should work there. And I definitely had a couple of those at gray lock that were like, why the hell is Dan here? And like, what value does he actually bring? And so you need pretty thick skin if you're going to have that job. And then you need to have a point of view on what does it take to be successful? And I wouldn't expect the partners to be able to kind of do that for you.
1: It's so interesting. Everything you just said, I would say is exactly what CPOs face in companies. Some executives are like, why are you here? And we have to prove in that
2: value and have a point of view on what that value is. On the talent partner piece, I totally agree with you, Dan. I always say from the outside looking in, it feels like talent partners have many masters. All of the GPs in the fund who have different views of what success looks like. And then all of the portfolio of CEOs who are at different stages of their business, who have different problems, but say, oh, Dan's there. So I expect Dan to do this thing for me. I feel like it's almost an impossible task and, you know, obviously you did it amazingly well at Greylock and took the learnings and and parlayed them. But I, I, I do caution. A lot of my friends who are like, I want to get into VC. I'm like, are you sure? Like, do you, what do you tell people who come to you and say like, should I get into a VC talent partner role?
0: Um, I tell them what to think about and consider. I try not to tell people what they should or should not do of like, here's the expectations around the role. I think if you do have, like, there's usually at least one or two people that are the champion for bringing that in. And as long as you have them in your corner and, like, you can actually speak to driving some success and then deciding, right, is success trying to make everyone a little bit happy or is it making a few people, like, very happy? Because there's only trade-offs and, like, the firms are always going to be too small relative to the amount of work that they need to do. And so you have to make some bets about what you're going to impact and what you are going to do and what you're not going to do. And if your job is just like, oh, I'm going to try and make everyone happy with every random request, like it's just going to fail. And so um, I think I had the benefit of having, you know, John Lilly and Reed and the ability to say like, all right, well, here's our strategy. Here's my strategy. Here's how I'm going to execute about it. Um, The other thing that I actually cage people, everything that I did at Greylock, I caged as an experiment And so I would say, I want to experiment with X. I knew exactly what I wanted to do, but I wanted to at least be able to, so like, here's a little thing, here's, I'm going to prove how it works. Here's the data. And we're going to invest like further in that a bit more, but it allows, um, no one's going to argue with an experiment, but like, you're going to get into like a giant argument. If you have eight people trying to like argue against your core strategy and if, if you even get the chance to like present in front of partners. Cause I don't know how many talent partners actually get to present like their strategy in front of partners.
2: It's such a great way to get buy-in it just in general. It's a great rule of thumb is frame it as an experiment.
1: Iterate. It's a great, great word. Dan, you have a, a shit ton of advising gigs, which is great. I think we both advise for Chainlink, which is fun, but I get a lot of questions. I want to be an advisor like you. I want to advise, like how, how does that happen? any advice you'd give to the group on how to get into advising and pitfalls to be careful of on what, what it's really like versus kind of what the, you know, what, what's in our heads about the coolness factor advising. I still work with Chainlink. I think I, I can't ever tell Sergey now
0: I've tried to get him to like, stop paying him, like stop like giving us stuff. Like I'll just help you. And he's like, no, like I, I refuse to do that. We'll like keep you on the advisor piece He's
2: he's phenomenal. That's probably why you still do it by the way.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I, i I think it's a pretty impressive company. I've been working with them for three years now. Like it's crazy. Um, but i think part of it is like having one, you got to really like the people you re- have to like the problem. Uh, it's generally not a lot about money. I guess it, it could work out like a little bit, but I think part of it is, do I, do I get to put my expertise to work and do I get to put it in a place where it's incredibly like useful? Um, when I joined Greylock, I thought I would never do another HR product, like as long as I live. And then I got introduced to um Coltramp when they first got started. It was just like the five founders and they came to the office and like we had a really good chat about what they were doing. And they had this like really good forcing function for collecting data. And so I decided to kind of join them as an advisor when they were first getting started. And I helped them with a lot of their early customers. Um and like working with DDA was like phenomenal. Um and so I guess what I would suggest is like Pick people that you actually want to spend time with and are doing things that you find valuable. Um, I think Todd Park and, and Devoted Health was another one that I really enjoyed. Um, so I think it's it's a way of in some ways kind of giving back, and also it's good for your you know reputation, especially if like you're starting out. Now that I run the fund, I can't really I can I don't do I don't do any personal advising. So if there's any advising stuff, it goes directly into the services part of the fund. But yeah, I think it's it's a great it's a great way to give back and get exposure outside of your own like little world and like making sure you contain it in a way that has clear deliverables and they're not just tricking you into you into a second job.
1: Yeah. And Dan, if you're a founder, when do you need an advisor?
0: Yeah. You don't need an advisor you need advisors. Um, and so I think a lot of, a lot of like, I think I, a lot of the work that we do is like applied advice. Like we're doing advice and execution on it with our, with our companies. In that, you know, if you're a founder, you usually spike in a particular area. Giving in tech, it's almost all engineering spiking. Like they know, he says, but they, you know, maybe struggle with customer discovery or deal navigation or all these other pieces. And so I think for people that understand their strengths and weaknesses of having folks that can work with them um, is incredibly important. I think what we saw is that our go to market like expertise has been incredibly valuable to the types of founders that we work with of what the hell is procurement? Like they didn't even know that a thing called procurement existed before. And so now they're having to talk to people that are like hammering down, like what with the deal that they thought they already struck. And so just having someone work through these things that you've never seen before, and you're not going to really get that from your VC because a lot of investors either have only been an investor or they operated before cloud existed. So like, it's a different set of like expertise of like, you know. I, mean, I, I wouldn't take my advice on recruiting. Like I would have actively recruited right. that much anymore. And so you should talk to someone who's doing you it need, a get You get out need of an advisor. Here,
2: get out of here. <laughs> uh, Dan, you raised your fund in twenty eighteen. It is now the end of twenty twenty three and the world of venture looks a lot different. What are you expecting going into 2024 and how are you positioning the fund and advising founders?
0: I think we got lucky. Like it didn't feel like lucky, but it was lucky. So original fund 2018 was all services. So it was pretty small. Uh, Our first institutional fund was a couple of years ago. So that was 240. So really got started in, I guess, like 22 all the crazy investments got done in 21. So we were lucky in that we don't have a bunch of like highly overvalued companies that we're going to have to do markdowns on. So that, that was pretty lucky, um, for us. Um, I'm a little worried about 2024. I think there's a lot of things going on in the world. So you have Ukraine, you have Israel, we have an election coming up. It's like, um, so it could get a little bit dicey. So I'm just trying to actually enjoy 2023 before I don't want to worry about 24 until like I get through the holidays and be like, all right, the election has started now. Shit's going to get weird again. So I think through COVID and the last, um, year or so, companies have gotten very, very efficient and raising the money that allows them to operate for a couple of years and really focusing on revenue and profitability. And I think that that's good because you can't just raise your way out of problems. And so I think that that lays a, a very good foundation to build some great companies. I'm excited about our portfolio and the set of things that they're doing. And they've been battle tested in a way that most people haven't It'd been 10 years since we've had any kind of downturn. So you could be, a 10 year Silicon Valley veteran had never been through any kind of economic issues. And so I think it's a it's a good reset and I think it's good for people to help run better businesses. And like now just assume things are going to be shitty. And if you plan against that, then like you're going to put yourself in a position to be successful and then take like, leave some dry powder for hiring and, or whatever you needed. So if you like the, if it looks like the opportunity is starting to get some momentum that you can invest kind of behind it. And so I think we we're, we we're trying to do way too many things at once in 2021. And I think, you know, much of the industry got over their skis.
2: Yep. I agree. So transitioning into our rapid fire questions, I want to know who your best hire is and why. Ooh, can I do two? Is that okay? Yeah, to, to school. How don't think
0: about this. Um, you might know a guy named Brett Record. So uh, Brett's the partner at Sequoia. He is exceptional. Uh, I met him, I don't know how many years ago. Um, and so he got started. We, we're a week apart, like in, in age. Um, I actually uh, officiated his wedding and he and his wife are my daughter's like godparents. When he graduated, I guess in like 99, 2000, like all like the market like went to hell. And so his job at Anderson Consulting or Accenture, basically he lost it. And so he was working for a buddy of ours at Cushman and Wakefield doing contracts, getting paid like 18 bucks an hour. And I'm like, Hey, you're pretty smart. Like you should try recruiting. Um, I can't hire you because you don't have any experience, but I can get you a job at an agency. Like you're going to have to like cut your teeth, like kill what you eat, But, like, do that for a couple years and then I'll hire you to work for me um, wherever I'm at. So, placed him at the agency. He did that work. And then um, a couple years later, I was like, all right, like, you've learned it. Let's hire. Let's bring you in. And so I brought him in. I introduced him to Shrep and John Lilly. Both said, no, we should not like hire this person. And I said, well, I want to hire him, like, anyways, because I think he's going to do a really good job. And he was probably like, one of the best hires that I've ever made in in my career. And then I think a couple of years later, like John came to me. He's like, I will never question you on any hire ever. Like you can hire whoever the hell you want because like Brett has been like, so like phenomenal. My other favorite one was, um, we needed to hire associates, uh, at Greylock. And so I'm like, all right, I'll work with the search firm. We paid them like $90,000. Like it went absolutely nowhere. I won't throw the search firm under the bus, but I'm like, all right, I'll, I'm just going to do it myself. And so, that's actually probably my favorite search because, like, that search, like of those people there, one's a partner at Index, one's a partner at Quiet. Um, there's, there's a bunch of people that went through. The person that we ultimately ended up identifying was a guy named Sam Modemetti, um, who was you know just out of Stanford PM at Relate IQ. He wanted to start like a, a startup. I'd stayed close to him like a year later. He's like, All right, well this business is doing okay, but it's never going to be a huge business. I'd like to like rethink moving and venture. So we ended up hiring him as an associate. Like he's now kind of heir apparent to like run Greylock. Like he's kind of on the management committee. I don't even know if he's 30 years old yet, but I think, uh, I have, I have a good nose for, for talent, like pretty early in their career. So, uh, whatever credit I can take for their career success, I'm happy. I'm happy to do.
2: Is there a secret there that like for the undiscovered talent of like how you're finding these people and what tips, what tips it to you?
0: Is there a secret? Um, I think it's twofold. I don't, it's actually a good question that i thought about discussing with the guys. I'm not big on structured interviews. Um, a lot of my approach on, on what I do is I really go deep into people's work history of like what they did, why they did it, the decisions they made, why they mattered, the impact they had in the role And then I validate all those things. So I'll go and do references because like my worst set of people to interview are consultants like McKinsey and Bain, because they're all taught to do presentations. And so you can't really tell who's good and who's not. And so a lot of the work of getting through and understanding what people have done, what they think that they're capable of doing and where they want to go and then validating that they were are good. So in Psalm's case, like I reached out to GJ Patel, who was running product at the time And he's like, Psalm is too good to work in venture. He should start a company. And so I'm like, all right, like, (laughs) like that was a good reference, like figure out that he's someone that we should spend time on and now DJs in venture. So, um, so I think a lot of it is like trying to understand, you know, is a person good? And, um, yeah, my experience kind of like, I think a lot of like past experience indicates like future experience. And I think a lot of the people that we ended up hiring at the GP, a lot of first generation, like college students, a lot of, um, first generation people in the U S and it's funny, it's not, um, by design that we look for that. It was kind of after the fact. And we were having like a lunch or dinner that those things came out. And then there's a certain level of kind of grit and desire that kind of tried to look for and find in people of like, is this person unwilling to, uh, not be successful. So like, they just, they're not going to be stopped. And so trying to
1: find that whenever
2: possible, they have some, some sort of chip, like something about them. That's like, I just,
1: yeah, a little bit broken, but salsa dancing lessons.
2: They gotta be a little bit broken.
1: Dan, I did want to sneak in one more question, uh, to your point on past experience, you know, predicting future, etc. is the power of back channels. Um, and leveraging those or not, or if so, how, and how you've done that in your career, especially with executive hiring
0: fairly quick to get most people. A lot of times I can do it with like a text message of, do you know this person? How well do you know them? Are they good? And so uh, references are probably the most important part of it. I think interviews are the best that we have, but they're a pretty poor indicator of whether or not like someone's going to be successful. I think there's a percentage of people that are going to suck no matter what there's a percentage of people that'll be successful no matter what. And then the vast majority of um, people it's like situational. And so I think that's part of why I like um, doing a lot of history of like why people like, you know, what people like, because it helps me to fit like, what size hole do they fit in an organization and what are, how do I put them in the place that's going to make them be where they can actually be most successful. And I think that that that's kind of led a lot of like the back channel helps. But I think part of that is really kind of understanding things that people maybe don't understand themselves. And so I've had folks come to me like years later and be like, our interview was really helpful. And I'm like, I don't even remember that conversation. And I think part of that's because I've had I don't know how many thousands of them like over the years, but you know, if you can find like what people like actually makes them tick, like you can put them in the right job. And I think that's one of the really great parts of, of being like a venture partner in talent, which is if you fundamentally know your companies and you know what motivates people and you know what they're good at, you have an opportunity to put them in like the best jobs that they're ever going to have. And there's a lot of reward a lot of reward that. And that's probably like the best part of doing this job and every job that I've had of like, when someone comes back and they're like, that is the best job that I've ever had. Like, thank you.
1: Yeah. I couldn't agree more on the back channels. I mean, I I used to get maybe one, two texts a week. Right. And th- the texts would be, are, this is, are they good? And my answer would be, well, it depends <laughs> what are <laughs> yeah, you hiring them for and, and where. Uh, so I, yeah, they can be dangerous. They can be super helpful.
2: The learning, I think for the audience though, is that especially in tech, the world is so much smaller than you actually think. And the longer that you're in the world, the more people know you. And it's just, it's usually just like, you know, it's what is it? Seven degrees from Kevin Bacon. It's like more like seven degrees from like Dan Portillo. Cause like people are going to be able to figure out very quickly who you worked with and hit them up. And so that's where reputation, I think really matters. And regardless, I was talking to a friend the other night who's a little frustrated in her current role. And I was like, whatever happens, like you must leave on good terms and, and you must end that thing as professionally as possible. And that's one of the things I look at earlier in my career, uh, that I regret that I wish I would have done better. And it's uh, people, people are connected super small,
0: but there's one thing actually, hopefully it's helpful to the audience of, as I, as I think about like my career and some of the lessons of like early in your career, everyone that you talk to is more valuable to you than you are to them. And that at some point, like that will flip when you build enough expertise or knowledge and being aware of like, when that flips of like, how do you then start to give like back to people in it? And, you know, there's, there's also kind of this growth in, in working as a, you know, in talent or talent partner that. The beginning is like you get good at sourcing and then you get good at running process. And then, you know, maybe you get uh, good at closing people or you run a big talent team of the people that I've found that like work at like a truly like expert level. Are more than just like closing wrecks. Like you're not just like, Oh, here's this job. I found the person. I closed it, but you're actually filling holes like inside of companies. And so part of that is like understanding like, well, what are we trying to accomplish? Like with this job or this piece that we want to hire and that when we place a position, does it actually cover two holes that we have, not just one? And so how does that kind of factor in and where you kind of move from? filling jobs in a company to actually company building and that's a very different skill set um that takes a long time to get to and i think that that's kind of the big shift of when you've gotten to that really like top level in your career that you're able to kind of affect organization like organizational level problems not requisition problems
2: that's the top of the food chain of designing teams And ultimately, what I think founders really want when they're hiring a chief people officer or head of recruiting is somebody who's not just like, let me just put a butt in the seat. It's somebody who's thinking holistically, not just about the skills required, but the interpersonal skills and how that person interacts. And ultimately, that's going to be the the team that builds the company or that kills the company. Dan, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. You've always been a mentor to me. Every time we talk, I learn so much. And I really appreciate the time. Yeah.
1: Thanks so much, Dan. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. This is
0: a lot of fun. You guys are amazing at what you do. And so I'm just grateful I get to chat. So thank you.
2: Thanks, man. HR Heretics is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Econ 102, Moment of Zen, and Turpentine VC. Subscribe, five stars, share it on Apple, YouTube, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts, all the things.